folks, and welcome welcome back to NTI's Japan Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Zivna Kajimam, again, and this podcast is brought to you, among others, by Native Shark, which is an online platform for learning Japanese. And what Native Shark do is they make learning Japanese really, really simple. You log in, you click a button that says study now, and the platform then shows you exactly what you need to learn next based on your previous progress. Now, again, this is simple, but the way it's designed means that students who use Native Shark once a day for four to five months can complete the equivalent of over two years of university study. And this is not just um, them patting themselves on the back. Now that Native Shark's been in business for over a year, the results are in. So this is exactly what people are saying. Uh, just looking at the couple of posts in their community forums. And the student community, by the way, is one of the best things about the platform. So one person's writing, most productive year I've had learning Japanese. And then another one says, I've started learning over a year ago with all of these other platforms. And what I learned there is only a fraction of what I've learned on Native Shark in just three months. And then yet another one goes, in my mind, my study timeline only started with Native Shark because that's when I really started learning consistently and on and on. So yet the proofs in the pudding, it's definitely the best online course out there. And since you've heard about it here on the podcast, you also get an extra little bonus. If you sign up for their free trial uh, using the URL nativeshark.com forward slash NTI, and we'll link to it in this episode's show notes. So that's native without an E. So N-A-T-I-V shark, all one word, dot com forward slash N-T-I. You use that link to sign up and you'll get a double length free trial. So two weeks free instead of just the one. No need to put in your credit card, anything of that sort. You can just sign up, give it a shot, and chances are at the end of these two weeks, you'll already be far ahead of wherever you are with your Japanese at the moment, whether you're just starting out or you're already in knee deep. Give it a shot. NativeShark.com forward slash NTI. Okay, so as usual, right before we get into today's episode, quick reminder about our awesome December business networking and board games, card games event at the Hotel Montan in Fukuoka. We've just finished shooting some video footage of the venue a couple of days ago. And my God, that lounge area and the private function rooms are stunning. I haven't been there for a couple of months, so I completely forgot how awesome that hotel is. And I'm now even more excited about getting together with all of you to talk some business, get to know each other, and of course, play some games. So we'll have that video edited and ready for you next week, hopefully, and you'll see exactly what I mean. But if you haven't read about the event itself yet, do hop over to our event page. We'll link to it as usual in this episode's show notes, but you can also find a link to it uh, towards the middle of our homepage as well. That's at nippontradings with a double p.com. Okay, so for today's episode, this is a recording of the second event in a series of three hosted by Global Chamber, who are uh, a community of CEOs, executives, and business leaders from all around the world. They've got members in over 500 cities globally and still growing fast. So in light of the new trade agreement between Australia, the UK, and Japan, Global Chamber put together a series of uh, webinars, or Globinars as they call them, the first one was about the various different business cultures in each of those countries. The second, which I participated in, was a global trade update session. And that's the recording you're gonna be watching or listening to today. And the third, which will take place on November 10th, is going to be an open Q&A session with all of the panelists from the first two sessions. 
should be a really interesting one as well. You can register and join for free and we'll link to the event page in this episode's show notes as well. Now, as far as this session that we're going to be playing for you now, that had four of us uh, panelists, five including Kirsty Wilkinson, who was also co-moderator, each of us with our own connections to one or more of those three countries, each of us with our own field of expertise, really interesting conversation about the current state of global trade with a special focus on Japan, Australia and the UK again. So really good chat. I hope you enjoy it and I'll see you again on the other side. Good morning, afternoon and evening. Welcome to our members and guests of Global Chamber. We are delighted that you are here with us today to participate in, our, in part two of our three-part webinar series focused on doing business with Australia, Japan and the United Kingdom. For those who are new to Global Chamber, we are a global community of CEOs, executives and business leaders focused on international trade and investment activities. We're not like traditional chambers of commerce. What sets us apart is we're in over 190 countries with 525 metros, just like the metro here in London. And our metros are run by business leaders who are steered by the global community to accelerate and enhance business activities for our members. In our last session, we focused on the importance of business culture, language, and the norms about doing business with each other. This was a great learning opportunity for us all when it comes, comes down to how we do business better. So today's our second session in the series, and we'll be focusing on trade and business opportunities across the three regions. And it could never be timelier for us to be exploring these opportunities and also maybe the pitfalls as well, as the UK progresses to join the Comprehensive and Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership. That's a bit of a mouthful to say the least, but this is gonna bring about some great business opportunities for a lot of our members around the world. For the 11 countries already participating and over 111 billion pounds worth of business being done in 2019 alone, it brings about a lot of opportunities to create new business channels. But it's also important to reflect why we're bringing these three nations together in this Globinar series. And that's really easy. Australia and Japan have a long-lasting and very strong strategic alliance and relationship, and also Australia and the United Kingdom, having shared cultural norms and many other things in terms of business and strategic alliances, it makes sense to bring us all together and to discuss the amazing business opportunities that are at hand as things evolve. And one of the other big topics we've been talking about is what, are happening, what is happening now for business now that COVID restrictions lifting, you know, airports opening, you know, we're able to move around a lot more fluidly. So I'm looking forward to today's conversation and bringing these opportunities to the forefront. But before we begin, I'd like to make some introductions. My name is Katie Keith and I'm the Executive Director for the Global Chamber here in London and I'm also the Head of Partnerships for Currency UK. I'm going to be moderating today's session and I'm joined by my colleague Kirsty Wilkinson who is the Head of Asia Market Makers and also our Executive Director for Global Chamber in Melbourne. Good morning and all good evening to you Kirsty. how are you? Thanks, Katie. Thank you very much for the introduction. And before we go on to introduce our esteemed panellists, I'd just like to get a feel, Kirsty, because we've been having lots of conversations and we've been working together for the past few months to bring this series to life. And we've had a lot of topics of conversation. I know things are changing now in Australia. What's happening for, for you guys there at the moment in terms of business? There's certainly a lot of excitement that Sydney and Melbourne have come out of lockdown for a long time. Um, we are um, in lockdown, there was very limited what we could do. People are getting uh, really ready for the new year and um, excited about what that may bring. 
Yeah, it's really exciting times as things start to open up. Having grown up in Sydney myself, I'm really looking forward to going home and seeing the family. I know it's not just about business, this community, it's about people as well. And a lot of us are living and working in locations around the world and we've been sort of stuck there for a period of time. So it's good to hear that things are starting to reopen. And guys, for people who have joined us for the session live today, we really appreciate that. For those who are joining us for catch up, you know, we're, we're available to ask questions to after the fact. So please send them across to us. Kirsty's going to be sourcing any questions from the chat bar today. So please send them through. This is an interactive session. We'd love to hear from you. So without further ado, I'd like to get started and I'd like to introduce our lineup of panelists who have joined us for today's conversation. And we're looking forward and they're looking forward to sharing their insights and opportunities that are available and their experiences as well. So Richard, Head of Asia Pacific and Emerging Markets at International Investment Services in Gately. Good morning to you, joining us from London. Good morning. We've also got Sally Townsend, who's Commissioner of Trade, Tourism and Investment for the Government of South Australia. Joining us, Sally, good morning. Good afternoon for you. Good afternoon, Katie. Good afternoon. <laughs> Welcome. And Zim Nakajima Magen, Partner and Executive Manager at Nippon Traders International. It's lovely to meet you today, Zim. Thanks, Katie. Good afternoon. Thank you. And without, last but not least, we have Kristen, Christina Marino, Head of Travel and Hospitality to Sports, Travel and Hospitality Japan. Welcome, Christina. Hi, thank you, Katie. Nice to be here. Thank you. It's really great to have you all on today. And as I was saying before we started, this is a conversation. So I'm looking forward to sharing for you guys to share all of your insights and learnings and what's happening out there in the big wide world. And I'd like to start off um, with you, Sally. Could you please share a little bit, take, just to take a few minutes, just to share a little bit more about yourself and the work you do at the moment? Great. Thank you very much, Katie. So um, I'm a long-term Tokyo resident. I've been here for 20 years now, actually. Tw no, 21. 21 and a half, nearly 22. Wow, that's that's flown. Um, and But I'm from South Australia and I run the South Australia office here. So I'm in charge of Japan and Korea. And the office is actually um, only two and a half years old. So we opened in 2019. And before that, I was in the wine industry for a long time. And that's where... Um, Kirsty and I were just talking before where we first met when I gave a uh, a small seminar on the wine industry here in Japan. So um, that's my my strong point. But we cover nine different sectors here in my office. We're a lean team, literally two people, um, and a senior medium in Korea as well, who I haven't been able to see in the flesh yet. But um, looking forward to flying over there as soon as I can. So um, that's my job, and I'm also the uh, chair of the Australian New Zealand Chamber of Commerce here in Japan. I've been um, chair for three years now, I think, but involved in the chamber for a long time. And that's how I know Christina Marino, the, um, your other guest here this morning. Uh, we were both at the chamber. Oh, Christina, I think I perhaps you left before I joined, but that's how we first met. So it's a small world over here. It is a small world indeed, really, when you think about it. And it's really nice to hear. You've been in Japan for such a long time, Sally, and you've already, you know a few people on the call from the relationships that you've built over time. You know, in the work that you're doing with businesses in Japan, what are you noticing in terms of like, you know, what businesses are looking to do when they're diversifying into new markets at the moment? Are you noticing anything with them? 
Yeah, I think, um, you know, from what's happened with China uh, in particular, a lot of businesses are really looking at um, entering the Japan market, diversifying into Japan or re-establishing um, their relationships here or having another go. Perhaps they, you know, tried to enter the market a few years ago and they see that as another opportunity, for, you know, with a fresh start. But I think... Um, the fact that we opened in 2019 really worked well for South Australian businesses because we're here and we're on the ground and we can work for them when they can't work for themselves. So it's been fortuitous in that sense. And we've been um, super busy just doing that kind of work, trying to keep relationships going, trying to keep things moving when people can't do that themselves. So it, timing wise, it's worked out very well. Oh, fantastic. And what do you know, are you seeing any trends for businesses? I know we were just touching on COVID and things reopening and trying to keep those relationships alive. Are you seeing any trends emerging now that things are changing? Yeah, um, we're seeing a lot of trends. And I think um, something we've seen and we've really kind of caught on with um, with our South Australian producers is this trend in um, sustainability and um, functionality. So people have really had a long time to sit and think about how the world moves and, um, you know, what they're putting into their bodies and really, I think, thinking about things for the first time in a long time, people have had chance to, you know, just to take stock. Um, and we've seen a demand for certain things that, you know, people want high quality, sustainable products. People want um, to see, they want transparency. They want to just not buy something quickly and dispose of it quickly. They really want to hold on to it. So we're seeing a lot of opportunities there um, for, you know, people looking to enter the market with these kind of products. And, you know, as I mentioned before, where companies perhaps had a go at the Japan market but didn't weren't ready the first time or perhaps the market wasn't ready for them the first time it's you know i'm saying to these companies i think they're ready for you now let's have another crack yeah let's have another go i think that's time to revisit some of those past connections that maybe didn't go through for whatever reason because we've had a lot of disruption haven't we that's and a right. lot of time to reflect we've all faced our own mortality in some sense in terms of how we operate as humans and, and how we do business with one another. It's very interesting, Sally, and thank you for sharing that. I'm just noticing that um, Doug Brunke, our CEO and founder of Global Chamber has got his hand up. So I'm just gonna chime in for a minute and allow you to talk, Doug. You've got the stage. You there, Doug? You've got your Unmute hand up, yourself. Doug. Unmute yourself, Doug. <laughs> Unmute, yeah. <laughs> Maybe you hit that by accident. Okay, we'll come back to you, Doug. Put your hand up again if you'd like to have a chat. But well, we'd like to move along now. And, and Richard, I'd love to learn a little bit more about your, you and the work that you're doing here in the UK to help businesses who are expanding globally, working in different markets. So over to you to share a bit more about yourself. Yeah, thanks, Katie. So uh, I've been living in the UK for 11 years. 
Um, I moved over with one of the major Australian banks for what was meant to be a two-year placement. Um, yeah, liked it more than I anticipated. Uh, uh, post that, I had a global role um, for a major international bank um, and which really kind of took me to the Asia-Pacific markets from um, using London as a base. Uh, and then obviously you can hear from my accents as well, originally from Australia. Like yourself, Katie, I'm looking forward to going and spending Christmas with the family. Knock on wood if I can, can get there. Um, so that, that's my personal experience. But International Investment Services, we are basically what we say on the name. We help businesses expand abroad and also scale. Um, my particular area of focus is Asia Pacific, uh, but we help businesses both ways. We help a lot of Australian businesses into the UK. We also help um, them then ex expand further, whether it's Europe or Americas, but we also help UK businesses the other way into Asia uh, as well. Um, in terms of uh, trilateral trade and what we're, what we're seeing in the UK. I do think um, that the UK as a whole is positioning itself more towards the Pacific. I think there's a number of reasons for that. I think obviously, I won't mention the B word, um, but I think that, that as a result of that, perhaps things weren't as enshrined as they were with the number one trading partner. They do realise that Europe is the number one trading partner, however, they are looking to diversify. Having said that, though, obviously, you had that massive relationship with China and, and it still is there. And um, But like everyone and all the countries considered on this call, recently with them having a more aggressive foreign policy outlook, people are also considering other options and how they build those other options um, and diversify their trade from a few core markets, particularly um, when you consider how heavy everyone was invested in terms of getting goods from China, but also sending them um, to China as well. I think the, the whole coronavirus pandemic, particularly at the start of it, when um, all countries were struggling for PPE, really put it in focus of how how much certain supply chains relied on, relied on one particular partner. You overlay on top of that, the um, Japan was one of the first ones to roll over a free trade agreement with the UK. Um, the Australian free trade agreement is one of the first major ones to be announced outside of a European rollover, that there is a particular will and want amongst the markets um, to do more together. We're seeing that at a government level, but it is flowing through to business as well. Um, so, and if you look at um, foreign direct investment uh, over the past 12 to 24 months, Australia has always punched above its weight in terms of being a, a net foreign direct investor in the UK, in terms of it being fourth globally. Um, Japan has always kind of traditionally been strong, but as they were strengthening regional ties, I kind of dipped off, but that has picked up again. And I think last year, if you look at Department for International Trade Projects, Japan was number one or number two. So we are definitely seeing those flows move forward. We are seeing a commitment amongst those partners to do more. That's flowing from the, the geopolitical space into the trade space. Um, and also we're seeing a willingness from businesses to start trading again as well. Uh, one of the results of leaving the EU is it's also become a lot easier to get talent 
from the likes of Australia, Japan, because everyone's treated equally. So we also expect that once things uh, open up again, that and also because people in Australia and New Zealand have been locked down for so long, you're also going to see a mass flow of talent next year and the taps really turn on and actually start to see a lot of uh, British faces in Australia and a lot of Australian faces in the UK. But the good news is that it is flowing through to trade. We're running a program now for Austrade where we're helping 10 or 12 Australian fintechs into the UK market. Um, and we're also seeing a lot of it in terms of that knowledge transfer as well. We're having a lot of tech companies coming in from the region trying to establish themselves in the UK in recognition, particularly in the finance space, that UK is the fintech capital of the world. So um, all positives in that front. And I do think that you are, while not forgetting the importance of the next door neighbours in the UK, the UK as a whole is now starting to face a lot more to the Pacific, coupled with wanting to join the Trans-Pacific Partnership more trade and investment is happening between Australia and Japan. And I think you're going to see that trend continue in the, in the near future as well. Yeah, some really valuable insights there, Richard. Thank you for sharing those. And actually just reflecting on uh, the journey that you took coming over to the UK from Australia is very similar to my coming to work for one of the, the big fours and then falling in love and staying in the country that you live in. And I'm sure we all share a very similar theme in terms of, you know, we're speaking a different language, but we're living in a different country. And so the talent movement that you mentioned is so critical in that knowledge sharing and growth of business internationally and, and building those cultural bridges and gaps. So there's this really underlying value in that. And I think that the talent and movement uh, program that you're doing with Austrade, if, if viewers want to know more about that, please reach out, reach out to Richard, because I think that's a very important project that you're working on. I know a little bit about it. Um, and we're going to come back to you a bit more later, Richard, to talk a bit more about what are those opportunities and unpack that a bit more. But I'd now like to move across to Christina and, and learn a little bit more about the work that you're doing, a little bit about you, Christina, if you'd like to take a few moments to share. Yeah, thanks, Katie. Um, so I'm similar to uh, both Richard and Sally. I originally came to a country for what was supposed to be a very short term. So I came to Japan um, 20 years ago um, as a research student for a two-year program on a, the Japanese scholarship program um, and then ended up falling in love with Japan um, Originally wanted to learn Japanese. That was my main objective for coming to Japan. And, and I decided to stay on and um, do a master's degree here. Um, and then once I finished that, I um, temporarily went back um, to visit my mom. And then for some reason, ended up getting married to a Japanese guy. Uh, that brought me back to Japan. And I've been here for about 15 years now. So that's my personal story. Um, but uh, in terms of my work, I've always been, I've worked for both Japanese and Australian companies, always with a strong focus on Australia-Japan relations and um, just strengthening the commercial relations. Um, that's how Sally and I met. Um, I used to be executive director of the ANZCCJ. Um, uh, so sadly, we weren't able to work together in that role, but obviously I'm a strong supporter of Sally and, and the work that she's doing at the ANZCCJ. Um, so currently what I'm doing is I head the travel and hospitality uh, business at Sports Travel and Hospitality or SDH um, here in Japan. So um, what SDH does is essentially um, create uh, premium spectator experiences um, at major sporting events. 
So we originally came to Japan in 2017 to set up the office um, to essentially deliver the Rugby World Cup 2019 official hospitality program. And what's really interesting about um, STH and what we're doing in Japan is we're really creating a new industry. We're creating a new um, way of enjoying sports and creating a new way of businesses to connect with their VIP clients and for people to entertain um, using sport. And that naturally has a lot of um, opportunities for Australia and Japan to collaborate. Um, you know, we've seen a lot of, you know, as a, as a result of Rugby World Cup 2019 and the Tokyo 2020 Olympics, um, there's been a lot of conversation about the power of sports diplomacy and, you know, how you can use sport to actually connect countries and build your brand, um, your country brand. Um, so we're seeing a lot of really interesting opportunities in that area. Obviously, Australia being a major sporting nation, um, there's a lot of uh, opportunities for Australia um, to work with Japan collaboratively um, on major sporting events, I think. Yeah, a lot of business, a lot of sport does bring us together. And in terms of leveraging off sporting events like that for businesses, where do you think that where, where do you think the opportunities are at the moment for businesses, even in the UK and Australia, to leverage off, you know, some of the activities that are going on in Japan at the moment to reconnect those relationships, like Sally was saying, you know, you're going back to try again. You know, what, what does that look like for business? Yeah, so I think that uh, thanks to the two major sporting events that Japan has just hosted. Um, there's a natural uh, growing interest amongst Japanese consumers in sport, not just participating in sport, but also spectating it. Um, and we're seeing that, um, you know, we're also the official travel uh, provider for Rugby World Cup 2023. And obviously Rugby World Cup 2019 has some, had a massive impact on, you know, the Japanese consumer love for rugby. Um, so we're seeing um, that's the next tournament is in France. So we're seeing a lot more interest in that travel program and, you know, the opportunities that that will present for businesses that are capable at technology services around Stadia, um, also wearable technology, anything that has to do with um, data insights. So all the stuff that currently I think Australia is also um, coming out with a lot of innovation around um, is very interesting at the moment, I think. And it's something that we can provide world-class services for major sporting events. And I, But I think the key is also understanding exactly what your Japanese um, partner or customer wants and actually trying to find a complementary relationship. I think that sometimes that I think that is a key um, to understand what your customer wants and to actually be a consultant and try to understand before you actually try to impose something on the customer, if, mm. if that makes sense. And I think I'm sure that Sally will probably have um, some examples of, um, I think that is probably one of the things that will make or break a business relationship in Japan. And like, it's the attitude that, you know, a business comes with from the beginning and, you know, just putting in the time and the effort actually goes a long way in Japan. You, you've, you've hit the nail on the head. And in our first part of the series, we really, um, we really uncovered what that looks like. And you're right. It's building that relationship over a period of time. It doesn't just happen. And 
no doesn't always mean no and yes doesn't always mean yes. The language is completely different as well, which I'm sure you've experienced over the last 15 years that you've been living in Japan. And thank you very much, Christina, for sharing that. And I think we'll, there's there's lots of things emerging here and lots of things we can build on. And Ziv, I um, would love to call on you now to introduce yourself, share a little bit more about the work you're doing, a little bit more about yourself as well. Sure, thanks. Um, so I'm um, born and bred in Israel and moved to Australia where I've lived for about a decade in my late 20s and sort of married into uh, Japan, um, like in Christina's case, a little bit after I moved to Australia, actually. So I've been coming and going to Japan um, for maybe about 20 years now, just under. And then about 10 years ago, we've decided to uh, just take the plunge, started up our business a couple of years earlier. We're still running it from Australia, but then two years later, we've decided to move here on a more permanent basis. So just going on about nine years now and um, living in Japan. Um, and what we do is um, my wife and partner and myself, Chikako and I, um, we run a real estate advisory consultancy and portfolio management company. So we and that's obviously topics that you've touched in uh, touched on on the uh, first seminar and Christina just mentioned as well but um it's quite difficult in many cases to to um just bridge that cultural gap so there are obviously you know if many places in the world there are a lot of for example real estate agents that would love to do business with foreigners and the foreigners sort of have to pick um the right ones that are safe and stable to work with um, here it's kind of the other way around. Almost everybody is safe and stable to work with, but it's really difficult to find people that will actually want to work with you as a foreigner. So we sort of realized there's, um, we bought a couple of properties for our own personal investment portfolio. And then we realized there's quite a few people out there who could probably use uh, just having a hand in going through the same motions that we did when we did our first few deals here. And um, that's pretty much what we've been doing uh, ever since. So we help people research and conduct due diligence on negotiate, purchase, um, and then manage your portfolio, whether it's investment properties or holiday homes or land for development or whatever they're into. And uh, if and when they want to exit, we help them with sales as well. Yeah, and I think that plays a really big role in, in everybody. Like we've all moved around the world and a big component of what we do and how we invest into our new life is around the real estate, even for businesses looking for premises and so forth. And I think, Ziv, what I'd like to know is what are some key insights for, that you could share uh, with international investors that um, about Japan and doing business there at the moment? Because I know you talk a lot about the culture aspect. What can you share with us now about doing business there? Um, well, I, I'm just going to echo Christina in that regard as well. So obviously, it, it's important to listen and to recognize what the um, people that you're working with um, are actually like or interested in or the way they do business anywhere in the world. Um, in Japan, there's just more of that. So there are added layers. Um, it's never transactional. It's always relationship uh, focused. It, it always takes time to reach the decisions that would have been instant in other countries. And things are just not done the way you're used to um, in most countries, wherever you might be coming from. I mean, Japan's in Asia, but I think um, mentality-wise, they're maybe a bit more akin to uh, Germany or Switzerland than they are to their Asian neighbors. They're, they're very um, by the book and everything. Um, and I mean, there's a proper way to do everything and it, that goes into everything you do in Japan and real estate is no different. If anything, it's maybe a bit more emphasized because it, it is an old school industry here. 
Yeah, very, very important. And I think those insights are really important. And I think for, for me, when I moved to the UK and I started to settle after my two-year spree of wanting to move home and then making it a home, having to go through all of that process of unlearning and then relearning is quite quite critical. And um, Now we're going to interrupt this broadcast. I always wanted to say that. We're going to interrupt this broadcast to give you a quick reminder that NTI is now partnered with Meta Securities Hospitality Property Fund. And they're offering their mind-blowingly gorgeous Machia townhouses in Kyoto. So there's four of them, each about 100 years or older, lovingly restored and renovated to modern standards luxury. Stunning architecture and comfort, all the modern conveniences, including uh, your scenic indoor or outdoor bath, spectacular dining and sitting rooms, disgustingly decadent Japanese or Western-style bedrooms, high-speed Wi-Fi internet, kitchen, outdoor decks, Japanese gardens, the works. Now, each of these homes can comfortably host two or three families, including kids. So anywhere from one or two guests and all the way up to a dozen or so. And you can rent the entire house to yourself. So no other guests. It's all yours. Run around naked all day and night long, if that's your thing supreme Japanese-style luxury accommodation. And since at the moment there are still no foreign tourists in Kyoto, these places are available for rent at ridiculously low prices. So we're talking as little as $430 for a whole week. That's right, luxury accommodation for an entire clan, two families or more, for as little as four, five, or $600 a week. Obviously, the longer the stay, the cheaper the rate is, but you can rent these for anywhere between one or two nights and up to a month or more. So perfect for a weekend getaway, extended holiday, workation, family reunion, company retreat, or even as a gift to a valued client, whatever you might have in mind. And if you book these through our website, you're also going to get an added bonus of one or more 3,000 yen. So that's $30 QO cards, Q-U-O. Those are gift cards that you can use all around the country in convenience stores, restaurants, various stores, lifestyle shops, you name it. The number of cards you'll get depends on the length of the stay, but you'll always get at least one of these. So if you're in Japan, or even if you're out of Japan, but you think that you might be able to get in sometimes in the next year or two, and you've been thinking about spending some time in Kyoto, this is your chance to nab the best accommodation deal possible. So we'll link to the bookings page, which also has some amazing photo galleries for each of these properties on offer. Now, they all come with a fully equipped kitchen, but you can also choose to have your meals delivered to the property, if that's your thing. The operator can arrange that for you at very reasonable prices. And if you can't see the show notes for any reason, just go to our website, nippontradings.com. That's N-I-P-P-O-N tradings with an S, all one word, nippontradings.com forward slash Kyoto hyphen holiday hyphen rentals, or just go to nippontradings.com and you'll see the Kyoto holiday rentals option on the top right menu bar. Now we are already taking bookings, so some of the properties may not be available on your dates, but Mida security guys are super accommodating and they'll do their best to find you an available property for whenever it is you're planning your trip, get on there, book your inquiry, and take that dream holiday in Kyoto that you've been fantasizing about while these phenomenal prices are still available. And now, back to the podcast. And um, I think now we're going to open up for a conversation, and it's been really lovely to learn a little bit more about you all. There's some real themes here around, you know, the exposure that we've had across 
multiple countries and the experience and the culture that we bring with us. And I wanted to get all of you are doing doing work with global business leaders right now. You're helping people to achieve their goals when it comes to either moving their business into new markets or helping them to grow, helping them to understand markets. And Sally, you mentioned a little bit about working in the wine industry. I wonder if you could share a little bit more about what, you know, the next 12 to 18 months looks like for people trading across the countries, across Australia and Japan. I know that's your specialty. But, you know, what does it look and feel like to you over the next 12 to 18 months that you could share with others? Sure. Um, I think it's exciting um, for Australian wineries um, because a lot is going on in Japan, not so much, but it will. I'm really um, optimistic about the future. I think, uh, you know, Japan's hospitality economy or service economy will really bounce back from this um, in a big way. I mean, when you look at any lists of where people are looking to visit, um, you know, once they can move freely, Japan is usually at the top of the list for, you know, many nationalities. Um, and that's where we'll see Australian wines in the hotels and restaurants being served to these people. So I'm really um, positive about the movement of Australian wine into Japan. Um, the UK is seeing a lot, obviously. UK's always had this fantastic relationship with, you know, buying Australian wine. It's been long and loyal. And so has Japan. And I think... Um, what we need to do is, you know, Christina and you've both just talked about this now, is not imposing um, what we think is best uh, to the Japanese consumers and markets. And this is what I'm seeing a lot with the wineries that want to diversify into Japan, for example, after they've been selling to China for so long. They think that same product is going to work in Japan when more often than not it's not so um, this is where, I, you know, I've fielded a lot of calls from um, South Australian wineries, for example, who've just, you know, I mean, it's, it's awful to see that these businesses have, you know, suddenly it was overnight um, their exports pretty much went to zero for a lot of companies and a lot of these wineries were solely exporting to China because it was relatively easy. I don't want to say easy but much easier than Japan. Japan, as you know, as Ziv was just talking about, it's it's not transactional. It's all about relationships. So you can't just come over here and plop in your wine and have someone buy it at a really great price. It's, you know, it takes a lot of time. It takes market visits. It takes someone to come over here and traipse around the restaurants with their importer. Um, so, you know, this is where winemakers will have to look at what they're proposing and if that works with what consumers want, what the market is saying. We can't come to market here with, a, you know, 14% Shiraz that's in a bottle with red and gold on the label because that's obviously been made for another market. So mm. I, I, think there's, it's, I think there's a lot of positivity here. We just have to... Um, you know, it's, it's not going to happen overnight. It's going to take 12 to 18 months, um, but we can lay the groundwork now. We can listen to the market, see what the market wants, what consumers want, and get ready for the service industry boom. 
And Sally, what you're saying, it, and it's not just about the wine industry, this is about all industries and how yeah. we go about doing business. And I think I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this too, Richard, because, you know, I'd like to know what you think the next 12 to 18 months looks like here in the UK for inbound, um, business expanding inbound, because I know you guys do a lot of market research and help to support in that space. Yeah, so I'd like to pick up on, on a few things that Sally said. I think I think that applies to across industries. So even even exporters, that the importance of being in market and kind of immersing yourself and kind of going internationally. We advise people don't do it half hearted. You know, you need to be able to commit the resources to your internationalization. And if you don't have the resources, then don't do it, perhaps double down on your home market until you can get to that point. Um, with Japan, to, as opposed to Japan compared to the UK, coming from Australia, there is actually a recognition that, wow, the way of doing business here is very, very different. Actually, I probably should try and take the time to understand that it is going to take me a while. One of the biggest mistakes we see from Australians coming into the UK is to think that they can do it remotely or to think it's the same as Australia. Um, you know, they're vastly different markets. Uh, you are kind of positioned between kind of Europe and then in a still workable same day time zone to, to the Americas as well. So you do get global competition. Whereas in Australia, you know, it can be you're a big fish in a, in a small pond, but when you get to the UK, you are actually in quite a big pond. Um, and then there's a, 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 there can also be a naivety that, you know, because you're unique in Australia or you've got a um, unique value proposition that automatically it's the same in the UK without actually testing it. Um, and I'll give an example, um, you know, as part of our program, we also include a bit of executive training from people from London School of Economics. And they're talking about value propositions and trying to address competitions. And this one startup that we're dealing with is like, oh, we're completely unique. There's no competitors. And it's like, okay, well, who actually plays in your space? And they said, these guys, but then their offerings nowhere near as good as us. And the response was, uh, okay, so have they gone out of business? And it's like, no. Are they looking like they're going out of business anytime soon? It's like, no. So actually you do have competition and perhaps your unique value proposition, as you see unique, might not, might not be so unique to the market or might not be what's valued in this market. So I think there are, are kind of some general rules there. Um, people did get comfortable doing business with Zoom, but people much people still prefer doing it in person. And particularly as Australia opens up as well, um, business was still happening via Zoom and Teams, but that's going to be less of an excuse moving forward next year, given that Australia has opened the borders. So there's a generic advice here in the next 12 to 18 months, don't spread yourself too thin, choose a market, but also commit to it and get there as well. Yeah, some really strong points coming out there, actually, Richard. Thank you. So mistakes are being made remotely and it ties into that new norm of working as well. And what does our new normal look like? How are we engaging at the football match? How are we engaging doing a business deal? Are we going to fly to Japan? Are we going to fly to Australia or the UK? 
Um, and I'd like to um, call on you, Christina, to add your thoughts into this conversation, if you don't mind. Yeah, it's perfect because now we're talking about travel and, you know, we've just been, um, we're still a very new company in Japan and we've just um, started uh, really our travel business right before COVID hit. And obviously there's no denying that um, the travel industry globally is in a very difficult situation due to the uh, fact that inbound and outbound travel basically has stalled. Um, and of course, we've got several travel restrictions that have been put in place um, due to COVID-19. But I think that the outlook for Japan-Australia travel business opportunities in 2022-23 for us looks quite positive. And there is a sense of optimism in general that the recovery will be quite strong and steady once the restrictions have been lifted. Um, and as I think uh, Sally mentioned earlier, I think Japan has traditionally been a major source of inbound tourism for Australia um, and that relative importance of Japan for Australia is likely to increase even more as we emerge from COVID-19 and as we move into the recovery and growth um, phases. So the opportunity is probably for Japanese travelers, um, as we know, they're high value travelers. That essentially means that uh, the average Japanese traveler spends two or three times more than, you know, other people who travel overseas. So there are certainly business opportunities um, for travel operators like SDH Japan, for example, to create packages that are going to be attractive for Japanese customers who want to travel to Australia. Um, but also for Australian businesses that are looking to work with Japan-based companies to actually offer, you know, those value-added experiences or um, other things that we're seeing is, as we've, I think we've mentioned as well, like sustainability is now becoming quite a key. And also within the, the tourism industry is offering the opportunity for people to give back or to feel that there's purpose behind their, their expenditure. So that's one of the trends that's emerging at the moment. Um, but again, it's putting the time and effort to understand what the Japanese business and consumers actually want to get out of their experience. And that comes from working closely with the Japanese based partners. Um, in terms of events, um, again, uh, 2021 was a very tough year for major events. As we all know, the Olympics and other major sporting events around the world were either canceled or held without spectators, sometimes without international spectators. So um, obviously, the restrictions around gatherings has really um, affected the hospitality industry. But again, we're, start, we're already starting to see the easing of restrictions around that as well, which will support the travel industry. So in general, I think there's um, optimism in the market at the moment that things will get better um, in 2022. But again, it's going to take about 12 to 18 months, I think. Thank you, Christina. I think we are on a road to recovery. And I think even here in the UK, you know, the, the hospitality industry is repairing itself. Um, and I think that having a purpose around where you want to do business, going back to Richard's point, choose your market and do it well, because we need, we now need to explain why we're investing in travel and resources and moving from one place to another, um, not only to our bottom line, but to our consumers as well. You know, where are we spending our money and how is that sustainable in our company? So all of these factors are really key to making decisions on what what happens over the next 12 to 18 months. So really rich information coming here. And, and Kirsty, I noticed you popped your hand up. Would you like to add 
Yes, I would like to add a few things. I think um, what Richard um, mentioned about one market at a time is just so true. I think you tend to um, spread yourself too thin if you try and deal with too much at once. And um, and also to Sally's point earlier about uh, wineries, I actually was working with a uh, winery um, last year who um, had has done very well in China. It was interested in Japan, but they've they've just put the feelers out there. They're they're um, they're still you know waiting to see what happens. I think, but um, and we tried to educate them on that the way business is done in Japan is very different to China and. I actually um, was working with uh, another Japanese company as well um, with this client, but they clearly weren't ready. But I think they'll probably um, go back when they're actually, you know, ready to actually take the plunge. And uh, I think they, you know, they hadn't realised how much kind of money is, needs to be, um, you know, in, is involved and that, you know, things don't happen overnight. And that's what we just reinforced all the time that it's about building relationships and, and you know, building it over time. It doesn't just happen overnight. Um, I've also, um, earlier this year, I was, um, I became a um, Edgar Golf um, registered player, which is a, a um, international golf tour for people with a disability. And that's um, the number of um, member countries is actually growing. And there's actually been a very well-known uh, Japanese uh, golfer who also um, coaches mainly now. And um, I've actually been talking to Paul Sheehan, who owns Elite Japan. They actually run uh, golf tours um, with around Japan. And they're actually been adding um, new golf courses um, to their to their um, ones that they offer. Um, so, and we were looking at ways that we can actually work together. Um, I was also contacted by Arigato uh, Food Tours in Japan, and um, I'm actually going to be um, talking to them about the ways that we can actually work together. Um, I'm actually going to be doing an interview with them um, probably in early December, um, which is really exciting. Um, um, and I think also the Paralympics and the Olympics has really um, got people um, very excited about, you know, being able to go back to Japan, hopefully, you know, in the next year or so. Um, people, it's always, as Sally was saying, I think before that Japan is also, or might have been Christina, on the top of, the, top of their list in terms of places to travel to. It's always been um, one of mine and I'm dying to get back to Japan. It's been four years and four long years, I think. But um, And I think, you know, people are starting to think what else, um, you know, they can do. So thanks. Yeah. thanks. No, really, really, um, thank you for sharing that, Kirsty, because it, it just comes back down to that people element and how we've all been impacted by this change in our lives. And um, the Olympics does bring about a lot of amazing opportunities for the city that hosts. And, you know, how unfortunate that we've had a pandemic throughout the Olympics, but and it's really changed the way we do things. And I wanted to, to hand over to you, Ziv, because we're still going to be going through, over the next 12 to 18 months, my opinion is we're going to be having a mix of being able to do things remotely still, but also trying to accelerate and move things along, build those relationships in a way that we can. How are we... How are we how is it possible for people to continue to invest in into Japan in property? Remotely. Um, to be frank, for us, it's been remote from day one. So I guess because a lot of the work that we do is serving different clients in different time zones. And um, 
a lot of the properties that we help people purchase just because of the two and a half um, decades of deflation that Japan's had before the, the 2012 and so forth recovery, um, properties are very affordable. So people are not going to hop on a plane to buy a 20, 30, 40,000 US dollar condo unit, um, especially if it's got a tenant in there. So according to Japanese tenancy laws, they can't even inspect the property when it's being tenanted. So we've been working remotely from day one. And I guess for us, the pandemic... I mean, it separates a bit between investment um, investment buyer, investment property buyers and holiday home buyers. And the investors, um, not to sound tone deaf, because a lot of people like Sally were saying did suddenly um, lose a lot of their income or go out of business. But for investors, this has been a very opportune time. So prices in central Tokyo, central Osaka and Nagoya especially have been a lot softer. Um, even if they were not listed for a lesser price, they were definitely more negotiable. So our clients have been buying a lot in 2020 and even more so in 2021 to date. So from an investment perspective, things haven't changed much. If anything, when the market will recover, it maybe will become a bit more subdued. Holiday homemakers, though, are waiting. Um, some of them, the, the, the braver ones, are buying uh, sight unseen or remote viewings uh, sort of properties that we we view for them. Um, but a lot of them, when you're buying a holiday home, you actually want to inspect it in person. You want to walk through it. You want to look at the neighborhood or the area that you're going to be purchasing in. Um, so they, they have been purchasing to some extent, but a lot of them are waiting on the sidelines. So... I'm guessing, if anything, the next year, year and a half, as soon as um, as soon as the uh, movement is going to be a bit less restricted, we're probably going to be seeing a lot of holiday home owners coming in and purchasing. Mm. But there's a, there's a lot of opportunity at the moment. It's a good time to invest. Mm. And I'm hearing that you can do it remotely. So there's nothing really holding people back. And I think as people are starting to move around a bit more and there'll be lots of families relocating, lots of people moving around for job role changes that have been hanging on for those few years. I know quite a few colleagues that have been waiting to go to the US for work. And so all of those things are starting to happen again, which is quite important. And I do get a lot of questions about, you know, what about the family? What about the culture? What about settling in? And I think that's really key. Um, Thank you very much. Some really key insights there. And I think we, we've touched quite a bit on, you know, committing time, understanding the nature of the beast and how long it's going to take the investment and getting it right. You know, what are some of the pitfalls? And I'm going to throw out to anyone who'd like to answer. What are some of the things that businesses need to think about in this market at the moment over the next sort of two years? I think it's being patient really being patient because it's going to take time and it's not going to happen overnight. That's mm -hmm. sure. Thanks, Kirsty. For me, one thing I think is um, making sure that you're keeping up with the ever-changing trends and the market. I think it's still going to be quite volatile and it's still going to require for us to be always well-informed, well-prepared and very agile um, to actually take advantage of the opportunities that come out um, through the various changes. I mean, travel is changing. Like we literally like travel restrictions. You can't keep up with what's <laughs> happening in, in every country right now. But um, for people who are in that in that industry, it's very important for us to understand and you know the consumer sentiment. And where can people access? Where, where can businesses access these trends and information? Do you have any sort of tips or hints around what businesses can do? Some practical elements of checking in on these trends? Where can they find out? Uh, I think joining events like this is very 
is always very useful because you get really good insights from various perspectives, but also for us, obviously the, you know, government publications, research, there's a lot of research happening right now. Um, so, you know, just the, the usual official stats, um, it sounds quite boring, but it's, it, it is actually reliable information. Um, and just talking to customers, I think, talking mm. to the people who are going to buy your products is always the most important thing in my view. Yeah, uh, fantastic. More, more than ever, and we, we talked a little bit about this before we went online, Katie, is um, Japan can be a little bit insular when crisis hits. They tend to just focus inwards, you know, like when the pandemic hit, for example, they suddenly didn't even allow foreigners who are living in Japan to enter the country again. So I think there that will take a little bit more time to taper off, I think. So it's always important. And, and people who want to start a branch office in Japan or sell a product to Japan often hear that um, you're probably a lot better off establishing a local corporate presence, even if it's a little sales office and hiring um, native Japanese to, to be your mouthpiece here in Japan. And I think that's going to be a trend that's probably going to be a bit more emphasized in the next uh, year, year and a half, because we have um, uh, not a generation, but um, a lot of people who have been um, graduating and are, you know, have entered uh, positions in various companies that might have not even been exposed to foreigners over the last two, two years and maybe for the next one or two years. Um, and it's really going to be those relationships with local Japanese entities or a local Japanese presence in Japan is probably going to be something that's um, even more crucial at the moment. Mm, really good point. So having key contacts on the ground or even being able to be on the ground is quite important still, which is quite an important thing. And I think we, you know, we're discussing that. And, and as these new business channels open up, how are we going to do that effectively is the big question. And um, and I, I'd love to hear from Sally and Richard as well on this in terms of what you're seeing, because I know you are working with businesses to help them with that as they come into the market. Richard, would you like to go first? Uh, yeah, sure. So going going back to your point about where, where does one find this kind of information, if you are seriously considering about exporting or investing in an overseas market, use your local trade bodies. So that could be at a kind of federal slash national level. Um, so for example, if you in, in Australia, Austrade, but if you're looking at the other way around, use their trade body as well. So if you're looking at Australian business looking to enter the UK market, you can leverage both Austrade, but the Department for International Trade as well. Um, also, if you're in a particular industry, look at the local industry bodies as well. They will have the latest in terms of regulations, news updates will also give you a good grounding to reach out to um, complementary businesses or potentially partners in in the country as well um, so they're always good sources and also um, industry trade magazines and you know all else fails google and linkedin um, are always very good sources of information as well um, i think what you are starting to see is Europe is now open to the UK. The US is starting to open up as well. So if I'm a, you know, Asia pack business, I need to be wary that these people are going to start coming to the UK. Um, so don't necessarily do it remotely. Uh, you also raised another interesting point as well. And I was musing about it with some colleagues in us uh, in 
similar industries about what the nature of our business travel in future is going to be. And I think you are right. I think it's going to be more selective and more focus on the value. And, and I think that will be with also your visits or the period of time you spend. So for example, if you're Australian business looking to establish in the UK and you're not quite at the point or you are setting up that sales office rather than flying in one week you know, every three months over that first year, you might actually just come and invest four to six weeks and, and, and kind of get it all done rather than kind of go in and out as well. And I think I think that's going to be a, another trend as we look to business travel, I think will start happening again. But I think those trips will be a lot more thought out in terms of how to extract the most value. Is there a way to do it where I possibly reduce the need to go back within that half or within that quarter, whereas before it would be, you know, I might, however ridiculous it is crossing time zones, might fly in for a day or two, then fly back just for that one critical meeting. It will be, you know, would consider that one or Zoom or can I build out my program so I don't go have to go then go back in, in three months as well. Having said that though, things are starting to, to, to open up. And although whether it's Japan or Australia, as if you mentioned it for Japan, but Australia has done a very, very similar thing. For those of us Aussies who have tried to get back, we know that. <laughs> um, and But the rest of the world isn't. And, um, you know, credit uh, to New South Wales and Victoria who've said, actually, we, are, we operate in a global marketplace. We need to get things open again and start trading. Um, and I think you're seeing a, not only... Um, I think you're going to start to see a wave of people going back to see family, but a lot of Australian citizens and permanent residents who are doubling up with work trips. And that's essentially what I intend on do, doing this December as well. I think, yeah. it's also, I think it's also put people off um, staying in Australia, and I'm one of them. I'm seriously thinking about what I'm going to do next year. I'm th seriously thinking about um, moving back to the UK to do my master's. Um, and also spending some time in Japan. It, it just, I've just felt that during this whole pandemic, my career literally been on hold. So, um, so that, you know, there's a lot of people like that and thinking what they're going to do going forward. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a big impact. And I think, um, yeah, the, the, going back to your point, Richard, it's sort of the nature of the business and why we're going and, you know, making these big decisions within our business and our own lives as well. Um, and I'm just mindful, we've got seven minutes left of our conversation today. And Sally, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that topic. Um, and then I'd like to just do a recap uh, on some of the, the thoughts and emerging themes that have come out of today's session. Thanks, Katie. Yeah, um, just back on the information, as I said at the beginning, I'm one of those people that uh, South Australian businesses can reach out to um, to know more about uh, the Japan market, Austrade is there, and most Australian states have state offices in um, other countries. And, you know, the Chamber of Commerce here has been terrific, I think, in, um, you know, the disbursement of information and keeping people informed. And we've seen a huge rise in overseas members because we are on the ground and we can give that information and a lot of information is not available in English. So for people to log on and try and Google, 
right? <laughs> Try and Google. Good luck with that. So, you know, if you're a person looking at um, establishing a presence in market over here, for example, you've got a product and you try and find if a similar product is available in Japan, you will be bombarded with information in another language that's, you know, flashing lights, um, very messy. I'm looking at thinking about Rakuten at the moment, for example, um, you know, messy, hard to understand, hard to kind of navigate um, websites and, you know, it, it's not easy. And I don't want, looking at that again, I don't want people to get discouraged. That's a pitfall, I think, Katie, in that people think it's too hard, it's going to take too long, it's too hard, I'll wait. And that's what, you know, representatives, people, companies, consultants, you know, Kirsty, Richard, um, Ziv, you know, that's what we're doing. We're assisting people kind of navigate overseas markets. And it's Japan's fantastic. It really is. And it's, you know, a great place to put your product in if you've got the right product. But, um, but there can be so many, you know, barriers but, you know, there are grants out there. The Australian government is giving businesses money, use them, see what's available and have a go. Yeah, thanks, Sally. And I think just to, to, to say thank you to you all for your, your really valuable insights, tips, hints, resources. There's been a lot that's come out today. And I know that for the viewers watching from home and those who are attending today are really grateful for everything you've shared. And just to, to share a few things that have come up for me, and I think I'm going to start with the real positive Trade and investment is happening right now. Don't delay. There are people out there to support you. We've got experts on here today. We've got experts in our global chamber community. There are lots of other bodies that are helping people as well. Lots of grants and funding available. We want to make trade as easy as possible by coming together and building communities just like this to make it possible. But I think most importantly, forward planning is key sticking for the long game and having a strategy in place that can help accelerate that forward, but in a meaningful way. So being sustainable, being thoughtful, engaging with the right people, building relationships, understanding culture and barriers and values that are going to drive that relationship forward because you're investing a lot into this process and so you need to get it right. And I think um, technology came up a little bit there and I think this is a discussion for another day. How can we use technology to start building these relationships and start moving things along? And to Christina's point, how can we engage in a meaningful social way where we can come together at sporting events? We can start to meet in a way that's going to bring us together as a community. And then also, Ziv, thank you for your insights on what's happening in investment into Japan in property. That was really, really quite useful. And so thank you very much, all of you. Those insights are very key to driving us forward. And for our viewers, we will connect you with all of our panellists at our third part of our Globinar series, which will be an open forum. It's not going to be a panel discussion like today. It's going to be what we call a meetup, a cross-metro meetup with the Global Chamber. It allows people to talk to the panellists, any person, talk about their business, explore opportunities. We're going to have breakout rooms and we're going to talk about then making the business happen. So we'd like to do a little business along the way as well as learn about what we can do. So for everybody on the call, thank you very much. We'll see you on the 10th of November for our next meetup. And we'll be sharing this recording with our audience a bit later as well. Thank you very much.
Thank you. Good. Thank you, Katie. Thank you, Thank you, Katie. Enjoy the rest of your day, evening. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So that was event number two of Global Chamber's uh, Globinal series, Globinal series on trilateral trade. Really informative, really knowledgeable panelists. I trust you found some value in it. And if you have, again, be sure to sign up for the third and last panel, which will be uh, more interactive. So basically open floor again for audience, audience Q&A should be really interesting as well. And again, we'll link to the event registration page in this episode show notes. And once again, before we go 10 to 12 December at the Montan Hakata Hotel, which you'll soon see in the video, but you can already check out the photos of the venue, the speakers, the food, etc. Our business networking and board games, card games, strategy games event. Really hope to see you with us. If you haven't booked yet, well, what the hell are you waiting for? Link in the show notes as usual. Hurry up and secure your spot. Now, before we go, we're also, as always, going to tell you and also link to our other sponsor's website. That's Hiroshi Shimizu, immigration lawyer and administrative scrivener. If you're thinking about moving here on a more permanent basis, or you're already in Japan on some sort of a temporary visa, and you want to switch to a longer term or permanent one, or if you're considering setting up a local company or a branch office of a foreign company, and you've got any sort of business or visa-related inquiries, or even if you just want to find out what your options are on any of these topics, feel free to contact Hiroshi Shimizu. You can find him at japanimmigrationexperts.com and he can help you set up a company, apply for any kind of visa, or just provide you with the best advice and extremely affordable consultation related to these topics. And he's already done that for many of our listeners. So feel free to reach out to him. Again, that's japanimmigrationexperts.com and you'll be well on your way. And that's it from us for today, folks. Hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Japan Real Estate Podcast. Do share it with your networks and please let us know what you think. So leave us a short rating or review on the iTunes store, on Spotify, or just drop us a line in the comment section of wherever you might have found this episode. We love hearing from you. Hope to have you with us again next time. And until then, have a great day or night ahead. Yoroshiku!